Is this frequency in use? Welcome to Southgate Vibes, a selection of the latest stories direct from Southgate Amateur Radio News. I'm Steve Richards, Golf 4 Hotel Papa Echo. You're going to hear my personal picks of what is happening in amateur radio and the wider world of communications. Whether you're just starting out in ham radio or an experienced operator spinning around the spectrum for those rare and sometimes strange signals, I hope you'll find something to entertain you here. Welcome to Southgate Vibes. Hello there, radio lover. I hope you've had a fruitful time exploring the spectrum and that you found something new and interesting. I was pleased to be in the right place at the right time a few days ago when the 10-metre amateur band opened up to some exotic parts of the world. I was able to work several Japanese stations and I could hear a station in the Republic of Suriname, a small country on the northeastern Atlantic coast of South America. Just as I got fired up to call the station, the conditions changed and they were gone. And that's often the story on the 10-metre amateur band, which can often sound dead for days on end. But generally, it does bode well for better propagation as we climb painfully slowly up the side of Sunspot Cycle number 25. Over in the United States, a museum has recently taken possession of a wonderful collection of old radio equipment, a lot of it homemade. The local newspaper produced an article all about it, and it's a better-than-average look back at the radio equipment of yesteryear. And now it can all be enjoyed by anyone who visits the museum, rather than sitting in a dusty attic. Old pieces of radio history that used to have a home in Highland County in the state of Virginia, USA for several years now rest in a West Virginia museum due to the efforts of the Highland Amateur Radio Association. The Times-Gazette newspaper said that today most people take radio for granted as they've been able to listen to music and news like it's always been there. However, if you could go back before the turn of the century and turn on one of today's modern radios, all you would hear would be silence and static. It was only after the turn of the century that you might hear Morse code, dits and dars, then used to communicate because voice was not yet possible. It was not until Christmas Eve 1906 in the USA when Canadian Reginald Fessenden made the first transmission of voice and music over the airwaves. However, even if you knew Morse code and wanted to listen to the traffic between ships and their land stations, you couldn't go to an appliance store and purchase a radio receiver off the shelf, let alone a transmitter. If someone wanted to listen to this thing called wireless, they had to build their own receiver, using things like wire oatmeal boxes, pieces of coal and telephonists' headphones. Often these items were assembled on a kitchen breadboard, a term that is still used today by those who build their own electronic projects. 
Even after pre-assembled radios became widely available, many experimenters still wanted to build ones of their own design. Thus, in most villages and towns, a radio store would not only sell these newfangled devices, but would make repairs and sell individual components and parts to those wishing to build their own receiver. Recently, Highland Amateur Radio Association member David Gunderman notified the club that his father, Robert, needed to relocate to a smaller residence and wanted to donate his early homebrewed radio equipment to an organisation that would not only honour those early radio pioneers but preserve the equipment he designed and built for future generations with an interest in early radio history to enjoy and appreciate. Thus, a different and challenging project was undertaken by the Highland County Club. A few years ago, the Highland County Historical Society found an old wooden-cased radio in the Highland House Museum attic and contacted the Amateur Radio Club to find out more information about it. The club put out an inquiry to fellow amateur radio operators who collect antique radios and similar equipment. A ham in Switzerland referred them to Huntingdon's West Virginia Museum of Radio and Technology. Contact was made with the museum, and not only was information about the radio provided, it was built in Dayton, Ohio, by the way, but an offer to repair the radio to working condition was also made. And that response led to the West Virginia Museum being selected to receive the whole Gunderman collection. You can read the full article at www.timesgazette.com. People of my age grew up in a period when electrical equipment, not just radio but a wide range of devices, were made out of discrete individual components. They were pretty easy to take apart, even if one of the passages into adulthood was getting a healthy zap off high-voltage items like big capacitors and valve anodes. And when the equipment was eventually unrepairable, as a lad, I would desolder each individual resistor, capacitor and diode and, noting their value, would store them so that I could make up my own electronic projects from scratch. It was certainly a significant launching pad into my university electronic communications degree and onwards into my professional life in broadcasting. But the equipment of today is likely to be impenetrable and comprised of a few highly specific integrated circuits with 64 or more legs and, being proprietary, often very little data to understand what signals and voltages each one of those legs was supposed to carry. Fertile young minds, who might have an interest in how something works, just can't mess about with electrical devices like I could. And it seems that the supply of electrical engineers is quickly drying up. Rupert Godwin's Golf Mike 6 Hotel Victor Yankee writes on the Register website that electrical engineers are on the brink of extinction, threatening the entire tech ecosystem. While computer science course take-up has gone up by over 90% in the past 50 years, electrical engineering has declined by the same amount. The electronics graduate has become rarer than an Intel-based smartphone. That part of the technology industry which actually makes things has always been divided between hardies and softies, soldering iron versus compiler, oscilloscope versus debugger. But Rupert says that the balance is lost. Something is very wrong at the heart of our technology creation supply chain. In short, where have all the hardies gone? 
For most of the history of electronics, it was an industry that didn't need to sell itself because it was inherently cool for geeks. Look at the biographies of the great names in electronics, such as Intel co-founder Robert Noyce, or the father of the information age, Claude Shannon. And you find them as teenage geeks, pulling apart, then rebuilding, then designing radios and guitar amplifiers. The post-war generation tore down military surplus gear to teach themselves how it worked and to mine components to build their own inventions. This remained broadly true until the turn of the 21st century. A reasonably bright kid would realise that the family cathode ray tube television was in fact a particle accelerator with its own multi-kilovolt high-voltage generator, containing any amount of repurposable bits and pieces. Rupert Goodwin's comments that you could have a lot of fun with that. There were old analogue gadgets all over the place. You could peer inside Granny's radio and follow the signal path, component by component. Well, that's all gone now. If electronics are invisible at the start of a young engineer's life, they are invisible in the careers they may contemplate. In the 20th century, not only were consumer electronics full of differentiated analogue desirables, aerospace, the military and industry were too. Now everything is a screen with a user interface. You still need a lot of specialised hardware, but it's vanished deep into the background. No wonder everyone who once had the itch to solder now gets ensnared by software. Rupert concludes by asking whether it's possible for electronics to regain its status as a primary inspiration for young technical minds. Well, not without a lot of work from the industry that needs those minds, he says. The pipeline electronics once took as the natural order has broken. To reach new talent, the magic must be re-exposed. You can read Rupert's fascinating full article at www.theregister.com. You're listening to Southgate Vibes with me, Steve, G4 Hotel Papa Echo. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a comment or a question, pop us over an email. Our address is vibes at southgatearc.org. That's vibes at southgatearc.org. You never know, we might feature your message in a future edition. Really interesting jobs in telecommunications no doubt exist, but you don't too often get to hear about what they really entail. Back over in the USA, the regulator is advertising a job that sounds like a lot of fun if you like remotely controlling steerable radio systems and analysing the results they provide. If you don't mind uprooting yourself to the state of Maryland, this could be just the job for you. American National Amateur Radio Society, the ARRL, reports that the Federal Communications Commission, which is the American Communications Regulator, has started accepting applications for a telecommunications specialist at its High Frequency Direction Finding Centre in Columbia, Maryland. The centre supports the FCC in its over-the-air spectrum observation capabilities and provides direct support to the public safety community and other federal partners by locating interference sources on the HF radio spectrum that's below 30 MHz. The centre is part of the FCC's Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau in the Operations and Emergency Management Division. So, what does the job entail? 
the duties for the incumbent include performing watch duties and serving as a technical authority, providing technical assistance and guidance to communication systems users to resolve radio interference complaints and problems, and collecting radio signal analysis information. The role uses radio signal analysis equipment deployed throughout the United States to collect, correlate and analyse characteristics of radio signals involved in interference problems. This includes distress or safety-related signals or other radio signals involved in other high-priority activities, such as law enforcement or national defence, at HF, VHF and UHF. Collecting radio signal analysis information requires the understanding of complaints, inquiries and comments from multiple sources. It also resources the investigation of compliance with the FCC's rules and regulations and determining the appropriate actions to take utilising the FCC's remote HF network of radio direction finders and radio signal analysis equipment. The role also involves developing definitive technical solutions concerning telecommunication system architectures, interoperability, expansion potential and overall end-to-end -end compatibility. The job holder is required to interact with the public, licensees of various radio services, private industries, other government agencies and representatives of foreign governments. The postholder would be representing the Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau in meetings within and outside the agency, including the conducting of formal and on-the-job training of co-workers, new recruits, clients and participants of the United States Telecommunication Training Institute. Well, if you think this is a job for you, visit usajobs.gov for the complete job summary and how to apply. Well, that's it for this time. You've been listening to Southgate Vibes, stories about amateur radio and the world of communications from Southgate Amateur Radio News. You can find these stories and many more daily reports at our website, southgatearc.org. Don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch by sending an email to vibes at southgatearc.org. So until next time, this is Steve Richards, G4 Hotel Papa Echo, signing off and wishing you best 7-3.